Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or blog talk radio. I will also open the phone line following the first break. So everyone, if you want to call in, I will give you the number to call in. Well, tonight's show will explore how you can organize and analyze your autosomal DNA results with Diane Southern. Now, this is not the first show to focus on DNA, and I encourage all of you to review all of the archive shows on this topic. Well, as I mentioned, Diane Southern is the guest, and she has always has fun and upbeat, and, and, and she's full of energy. And I had an opportunity to observe her giving one of those really exciting lectures on organizing your DNA. She has a passion for genetic genealogy and a genuine love for people and a gift for making the technical understandable. Well, in the year 2000, Diane found herself in the right place at the right time. As an undergraduate in microbiology, the laboratory she has been volunteering in was headed to Egypt to collect more samples for genetic study from an abandoned cemetery just outside of Cairo. Well, while the trip never materialized, that research study became the foundation of the Saracen Molecular Genealogy Foundation, for whom she worked for the next 10 years. Now her duties at Saracen and her sister companies were varied from laboratory work to marketing to customer service. 
All of her knowledge and experience have culminated in her current position as your DNA guide. She writes for Family Tree Magazine and is the genetic gem at Lisa Louise Cook's Genealogy Gems, blogging and podcasting about DNA and genealogy. So let me give a warm welcome to Diane Southern to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Diane. Thank you, Bernice. This is so exciting. And thank you, all of you listeners, for tuning in. I am to be here and to answer all of your questions. Okay, and Diane, we have a full house. Okay, listeners, get your pen and pencil and paper out so that you can take notes, okay? So, Diane, let's begin at the beginning because we're talking about autosomal DNA. So let's just give a little brief review. What is an autosomal DNA? All right. Well, I think it's important to start with the fact that there are three different kinds of DNA tests you can take for genealogy, right? There's the autosomal that we're going to talk about tonight, but there's also a couple that have been around a little bit longer. Um, the mitochondrial DNA, which traces your direct maternal line, right? Your mother's 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 mother. And then the Y chromosome, which of course only men have, and that traces your direct paternal line, your father's 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 father. So for about 10 years, really, in genetic genealogy, that's all we had. And so about five years ago, when autosomal DNA testing came into play, everyone was really, really excited. All of us who couldn't find the right person to be tested, who, whose lines had doddered out, or whose pesky male relatives just didn't want to be tested, um, we now had choices. And that was really exciting and still is really exciting because autosomal DNA isn't restricted to just one line of inheritance. Your autosomal DNA represents everybody, uh, both your paternal line and your maternal line. So it's not restrictive, right? Um, I think it was uh, another uh, genetic genealogist who put it that the Y DNA and the mitochondrial DNA are deep and narrow. The autosomal DNA is wide but shallow. And we say it's wide because it covers both sides of your family tree, but shallow because it really can only help you back about four or five generations reliably. And so it does have some limitations, but it does open up some new doors. So autosomal DNA testing definitely is the hot topic of, of the time here. Right. And wide and shallow. Well, we need to hear a little bit more about wide and shallow. So what can autosomal DNA do for us? Well, the best thing that autosomal DNA can do for you, number one, is to create a record, right? That's what genealogists love. We want to go around and find the records that have been created by our ancestors, whether that's their birth records or their death records or their land records. We're always looking for records, right? We want substance. We want something to document their lives. And really having your DNA tested on any of the three DNA tests is doing that. You're creating a record for yourself, of yourself, and for your posterity. So that's the number one reason to have your DNA tested. Even if you never do one other thing with it, you've created a record and that's significant. So that's the first thing. The second thing is then to actually do something with it, right? You've paid this money, you've gone through the testing, you wanna actually do some genealogy work with it. But of course, that's not 
quite so easy. And part of the reason that it's not so easy is because of the way that autosomal DNA is inherited. So if you go back to your biology class years and years ago, you might remember that your DNA comes in these little packages called chromosomes. Okay, so we all, in every cell in our body, have 46 chromosomes. Okay, you got 23 from dad and 23 from mom. So it seems pretty straightforward, right? Half and half, easy to understand. But it's just not that simple because the DNA gets mixed up and changed and swapped in and out at every generation. And it's really difficult to look at one piece of your DNA and figure out who it came from. You can't look at a piece of DNA and say, oh, that's from my mom's side. It has curly hair. Your DNA doesn't look like that, right? It's just a, a piece of information. And so where with the Y DNA or the mitochondrial DNA, you knew exactly who that DNA came from. It's from that earliest known ancestor on that one single line. Your autosomal DNA is so much more difficult to interpret because it just doesn't have those inherent characteristics. You can't tell right away who that DNA belongs to. And so you have to trust the testing company, first of all, to do some good interpretation skills on your behalf. And then you have to employ your own common sense and your own understanding and your own genealogy skills to help you figure out how you're really connected to these people um, in, the, in the various testing companies. Okay, well, you say you have to trust your testing companies. So give us just an overview of the, the testing companies that offer autosomal DNA, and then tell us what you would consider the strengths and weaknesses of each company. Okay, so there are three different companies offering autosomal DNA testing. Uh, those companies are Ancestry and a company called Family Tree DNA and a company called 23 and Me. So all three companies are actually using almost exactly the same laboratory procedure. So they're all essentially running the same test on your DNA sample without really much variation. So you'd think then that the testing would be exactly the same everywhere you go and the results would be the same everywhere you go. But unfortunately, that's not the case because the actual testing procedure is only half the battle. The other half is the analysis. And the analysis is heavily dependent on what each testing company, what their current philosophy is, essentially. So there are a lot of different ways you can interpret the same information. And there isn't a standard way to interpret information. This is all new. This is still uncharted territory. We're still figuring this out. It's still very much a scientific discovery process. This is not a tried and true anything. So as far as each company is doing something a little bit differently, I can't say, oh, this company's better or doing it better. This one's more correct than the other one. There, there really isn't a clear answer about who's the best right now at what they're doing. Um, each company, like you mentioned, has their own individual strengths and weaknesses. So there are a few ways that we can evaluate them kind of on common turf. So the first one is the size of the database, right? Because let's face it, you're not going to find your match if your match hasn't tested, right? So we want to go right. to the place where the most people have been tested, right? So right now, of the three companies, um, 23andMe just announced last week that they've hit the 1 million mark. They've tested a million people. Um, Ancestry, I think, is right there. Um, if they haven't tested a million yet, they're going to in the next 
several weeks. So Ancestry and 23andMe are kind of neck and neck as far as number of people who've been tested. Family Tree DNA, the third company, is somewhere very distantly behind that. They haven't given any kind of exact number about the number of people who've had their autosomal DNA tested. They've released total number of people tested, but that includes their Y-DNA and mitochondrial DNA tests as well. So some genetic genealogists have made some estimates about what they think. And anyway, I think it's around 500,000, maybe less than that. So they're not even half as far as the other two companies. So as far as just sheer volume, um, you know, FTDNA should be your third choice because they have so many fewer people that have been tested. But of course, number of people tested isn't the only thing that we should be looking at. And a couple other things you might wanna be aware of are things like um, medical concerns, right? Some people are very, very concerned about this kind of information, about privacy, as we should be. You definitely need to evaluate what each testing company is going to do with your data. Um, for for many people, this is a very um, sticky point and something they're not willing to look past and they're absolutely never going to be tested because of these concerns. Uh, for the most part, I feel like personally, the benefits of being tested outweigh the concerns that I might have. There are laws in place. You can look up the GINA law, so capital G, capital I, capital N, capital A which is the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, which is essentially our country trying to say, okay, we recognize that there's some risk here. We want to put some laws in place that protect people against um, insurance companies or potential jobs discriminating based on genetic data. So that's essentially what the law is trying to do to protect you against these things. Um, But 23andMe as a company goal isn't necessarily to help you find your ancestors. They are interested in personal health. They are conducting research. They are using your DNA sample and your information in that research to try to make healthcare more personal. That's their real goal. They want to personalize healthcare so that we can be more in charge of our own health based on our genetic results. That's their goal as a company. They do provide ancestry information and matching with other people like we're interested in as genealogists, but that's not their focus. So if you, be, if you become interested in being tested at 23andMe, you need to be aware that they have other ideas in their head other than helping you find your ancestors. So as long as you're comfortable with their ideas, then great. Um, right now, as a U.S. citizen, you don't have access to any of their health reports or information. Uh, about a year and a half ago, the FDA said, yeah, we're not really comfortable with that. How about we make you jump through some hoops first before we really start releasing this kind of information to the public? And so uh, that's part of their website has been shut down to U.S. citizens. It's still available to people in other parts of the world, uh, but not to us. So if you're interested in health and you think that's a cool idea, then by all means, be tested at 23andMe. If that's something that really concerns you, then stay away. Um, So that's the biggest difference, really, that 23andMe has is this health component. Um, Ancestry and Family Tree DNA are both very much genetic genealogy companies. Their goal is to help you find your ancestors. Uh, So then you think about that. I have to say something. One question. One question here. Uh, I I did notice that Ancestry looks like they're dipping into the healthcare business also. Right. So they did just release this beta site to some people. Um, 
And there's as much more um, genealogy based in that it's not necessarily trying to report information about your health, but just help you capture information about your health. So instead of them giving you information, they're just providing a space for you to give them information. Now, will this eventually evolve into a service like 23andMe's providing? Um, I could see it going that way. I don't know that they've ever said anything about that, but certainly currently with the current climate with 23andMe dealing with the FDA, Ancestry's not going to be jumping in there anytime soon. If they're smart, which they are, they'll just let 23andMe figure it out and then they'll copy them if they want to go into that arena. Um, <laughs> but I, I can't, I don't know. I can't see them going into it full bore like 23andMe does. I think they could easily, like I said, copy all this information that 23andMe is using to create their health reports is all in the public domain. Uh, most of it is. Now they're creating a lot of their own private data and that maybe Ancestry wouldn't have access to. But before they shut down, pretty much everything that was on their site, you could get somewhere else. Um, they just you know, collected it nicely for you and interpreted it for you. And, but it's not anything the ancestor couldn't get their hands on if they wanted it. Uh, but I don't know that they will. I really don't. I think they're very focused on genealogy and I'm not really convinced that they'll go out into the health arena, at least not in the near future. Okay. Well, we have, as I am looking, a full house of chatters. And so they, they, they're interested in the autosomal, they're interested in organizing and analyzing that data. And certainly we're talking about connecting with living relatives. So I received the question uh, from someone on Facebook and I said, I will definitely ask this question. She wanted to know, well, how can you determine which surnames go with each chromosome? And since you mentioned that we have these chromosomes, how do you make sense out of this stuff? Oh, that's a good question. So there's really two schools of thought about how to use your data. Um, there's the people that demand what's called a chromosome browser, which is where you can actually see the sections of DNA that you're sharing with someone else. Um, so both Family Tree DNA and 23andMe offer these chromosome browsers where you can go in and say, hey, you know, Bernice, you and I are matching. I want to see where we're sharing, what pieces of DNA we share with each other. And they'll show us right there. We're sharing on chromosome 5 and on chromosome 7. So then, then we know that's where we're sharing. Um, and then there's Ancestry who believes that that information isn't that useful. Now I can hear everybody out there going, oh my gosh, she's got to fix that. Ancestry needs to have a chromosome browser. And this is like a huge topic of discussion in genetic genealogy. And I can see both sides. I really can. Um, and I can see why Ancestry is saying we don't need it. Um, I think sometimes, and I think I described this um, as I was writing, I feel like sometimes it's like the Ancestry is like the grown-up that has like triple padlocks on the door and like a huge gated fence in the yard so that we won't go out into the street. You know, it's like they're trying to protect us from the big bad world and from making mistakes and from not using the data correctly and all of these things. And then there's the other side. We're like, um, I'm a grown up. I can see the street. I can look both ways before I cross. I'm capable. Um, and that's how a lot of genetic genealogists feel. They're like, just give me the data and let me be responsible for what I do with it. 
And there's, like I said, I think there's, I can totally see both sides and I understand both sides. Uh, but to answer your question, um, how do we essentially use this data to make connections? Because what all the testing companies give you, they give you two things. They give you this really pretty map and a wheel that has all these colors on it that tells you your percentages. Like, where in the world do you come from? Well, you're 27% French and German, and you're 32% British and Irish, and all of these percentages, right? Okay, that's kind of a, a whole nother topic. And then they give you this list of matches. People that share enough DNA with you that the companies determined that you share a common ancestor. The problem is, what you have is a list of cousins, and what you want is ancestors, right? So how do you turn this list of cousins into an ancestor list? And really, you're left with whatever tools the testing company is going to provide you with, and very importantly, your own genealogical skills. Because in the end, DNA testing is not now, nor was it ever meant to be, a magic bullet. It is not going to be a quick and easy solution to all of your genetic genealogy woes. It's not. You're going to have to work for it still. So I think that's the piece that a lot of people are most disappointed by is that they didn't do the test and log in and find their pedigree filled in. Um, it just doesn't work that way, no matter what the testing companies try to tell you sometimes. Um, it doesn't. So if you have a piece of DNA that you share with someone else, there are uh, two reasons why you have that piece. The first reason is that you both inherited it from a common ancestor. So I like to think of these common ancestors like party hosts, right? You can picture your ancestor, he's back there, he's thinking, man, I'm not going to get to see my great, great, great grandchildren. I'm not going to get to know who they are. I know what I'll do. I'll throw a huge party in the future. And right now I'm going to send out party tickets in the form of my DNA. And everybody who gets a ticket will be invited to the party. And then all my descendants will get together and they'll say what a great guy I was. Okay. So that's what we're doing here with DNA testing. We're comparing party tickets. And so if Bernice, you and I share the same piece of DNA, we have received the same party ticket, either from a common ancestor or we have the same party ticket because our ancestors were both part of the same population group. So the two reasons that you share DNA with someone are either, one, you actually share a common ancestor, or two, we're just both African-American, or we're both Irish, or we're both French, or we're both Pennsylvania Dutch. Can you look at a piece of DNA and ask it that question? Can you say, hey, are we shared because we have a common ancestor or because we come from the same population? And the trick is you really can't. And there are some tricks you can use to try to figure out if that's a shared piece of DNA because it's from a common ancestor or a shared piece of DNA because it's from a common population group. But in the end, you still are left wondering unless you find that common ancestor. So ancestry in all of their padlocks and their gated yards are trying to help us by filtering out the pieces of DNA that they think are population group pieces and keeping the ones that they think are party tickets from a common ancestor. So there's a lot of people out there who are saying that ancestry is being an overprotective parent and taking out pieces of DNA that really belong. And we're seeing evidence of that, that they've gotten a little overzealous with their 
um, deletions and they've downgraded segments that are real, that really were party tickets and not just evidence of a shared population. But in the end, they're trying. They're trying to help us make sense of this DNA. And you can do it yourself in a way by using a chromosome browser. So, for example, if you log into Family Tree DNA, for example, and you put one of your matches in the chromosome browser, you can see the pieces of DNA that you share. Family Tree DNA also has this really cool tool called the In Common With tool. It's a little twisty arrow right underneath your match's name, and you can click on that twisty arrow and say In Common With, or show me the DNA that, or show me other people that have DNA in common with me and this match, and it gives you a list. Now let's say you put the first four people on your list into the chromosome browser along with your match. If all five of those people are sharing DNA in exactly the same place, what does that mean? Now initially, and before April, I would have told you that that meant that all of you shared a common ancestor, that those were all party tickets that you had all received from the same common ancestor, because that seemed to be the only explanation. But in April, Ancestry came out with this big data table that told us that in their research, with their nearly a million people that they're looking at, and as a scientist, I understand the power of a lot of data because your conclusions can change really quickly once you've amassed a lot of data. And they have. They have a lot of people that have tested, and they have a lot of information that they're looking at. And they claim, and again, I'm not 100% sold on this, but it's a very interesting idea that it's nearly impossible for individuals who are fourth cousins, for example, to share the same segment of DNA. So think about that for just a second. Think about your ancestors on that fourth cousin range. There's a lot of them, right? What's the likelihood that all of that filtering through every single generation all the way down to you, what's the likelihood that you and five other people received exactly the same tiny little piece of DNA? It really doesn't make that much sense that all of you would have received that same piece. But here it is in the chromosome browser, five, and I've seen so many people, 20 people sharing the same piece of DNA. So you have to ask yourself, is that piece of DNA shared because it's a party ticket, because we share the same common ancestor, or is it because we all have colonial ancestry? The real question you have to ask yourself before you get to your chromosome browser is how related are your ancestors? Because if your ancestors are all from the South, or they're all from colonial times, or they're all from anywhere that's the same place, they were related to each other. They had to have been. There just weren't that large of gene pools four generations ago. Before you begin on your journey, using a chromosome browser to try to match up these segments. Triangulation is what they call it, right? If three people share the same segment of DNA, then that should mean that you all share a common ancestor. Maybe, and that's not a bad way to think about it, but there are other ways to look at the data too. So you just have to be careful, and that's what Ancestry is trying to protect us against, is this wrong conclusion that all these people share a common ancestor, and that's a valid concern, I think. But 
there are ways to use a chromosome browser. And for me, right now, when I look at my chromosome browser and I see a bunch of people all stacked up sharing the same piece of DNA, instead of getting excited and thinking we all share a common ancestor, I get a little bit hesitant and I say, huh, this kind of looks like a region that may be really popular, that maybe I share with them because we all have German heritage, not because we all have one single common ancestor. So that was kind of a long Well, I'm, yet, I'm, I'm looking at some comments. One is uh, <laughs> just saying, oh, this is so confusing. Uh, but the way Ancestry DNA looks at the data are wrong most of the time. This is just comments coming out. And so it's very interesting that you would say, okay, let's say five people are matching on the same segment. And now you're saying maybe it's because they're from the same region that they're related. Please go into a little bit more on that discussion to help help us understand uh, where you're going with this. Okay, so let's think about it in colors because I think better in color. Okay. So okay. If you, I think originally when we're thinking about this we picture each ancestor having a distinct color of DNA and they're passing down our, their little segments. And if we could just figure out what color it was, we would know which ancestor it belonged to. So if you and I are sharing on a segment and we saw that that segment was green, well, then it goes back to the green ancestor. And that would be easy, right? If we could see how each ancestor passed their DNA down to us. The problem is, is that those ancestors, those, your third great grandparents, they don't all have their own unique mix of DNA. They're sharing DNA with each other. So when I see a green piece of DNA, it could have come from one of seven ancestors of mine because all seven of them had that same piece of green DNA. So when I see it in myself, there's no way for me to trace it back to one ancestor because I had seven ancestors that had that same piece of DNA because my ancestors mm -hmm. are related to each other. They were sharing DNA with each other because the population of my small county in South Carolina, where I have 15 ancestors, was small. They were related to each other. Mm -hmm. Even in communities that aren't you know, traditionally endogamous, like Jewish people, they know they have this problem, right? But the rest of us do too. It's simple mathematics that there are a lot more people on the earth today than there are ancestors. So all of us have to have come from a finite number of people, especially if we're talking about colonial America. This was a very small group of people that essentially populated a large portion of our pedigree chart. They were related to each other or second cousins marry each other, or any other number of related relationships happened. So you have to stop thinking about your ancestors as having this unique set of DNA that they passed on to you. It wasn't unique. They had pieces of DNA they were sharing with each other. And so when you see it in yourself, you can't be certain who it came from. It could have come from one of seven or eight ancestors in your pedigree chart. Well, there's a question coming out of the chat. What happens when you factor in the slave trade and you find that for those of African descent, they may end up finding their tri-racial so that they're seeing European, African, 
and Native American ancestry. How do you make sense and, out of that? So those people actually have it much easier in a way because their unique lines of inheritance, their ancestors aren't as related to each other as someone with European descent. So it actually makes it easier if your ancestry is more mixed. So for example, if your mom is Croatian and your dad was British, it makes it a lot easier for you than for those of us whose both lines are both British. Because you don't have as many ancestors who are related to each other. Okay, so I mean, the the comments are coming and easier question mark, question mark. Uh, some say, oh, <laughs> I respectfully disagree. Not quite sure <laughs> how to take this. But the well, point it's is because, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, it's harder because there aren't as many people tested who are African or Indian. So your database numbers are tiny. Uh, Bernice, I was looking at your family tree DNA results. You have two pages of matches. There are mm-hmm. people I have looked at that have 100 pages of matches. So, yeah, it's harder to be in genetic genealogy if you're African-American or Indian or Chinese or J- Japanese. I mean, the bulk of these genetic genealogy databases are European. So if you're not European, genetic genealogy is not helpful to you right now for the most part. And for some of us, it is helpful. It just depends on how much you know about your family history. Yeah, and who else has been tested, exactly. So help us understand, uh, so you were telling us about ancestry, and we know that ancestry uh, does not have a chromosome browser. However, they do have this algorithm that will put people in extremely high, very high, high, good, moderate. How does one make sense out of the algorithm that's presented to them through ancestry? This is probably the biggest point of debate between the genetic genealogy community and ancestry. They are not giving us enough information. That's just hands down the way it is. And like I said, they think they're protecting us, but in the end, they're just not giving us what we need. Um, I don't know that we necessarily need a chromosome browser, um, but we need to know how much total DNA is being shared with us in a match. It'd be nice to know how many segments. It would be nice to know how long those segments are. Um, the position on the chromosome, I don't know, it's secondary for me. It doesn't really matter to me where it is. I just want to know what it looks like, um, and that would be helpful. Um, but they, yeah, and, and I think we'll get there. I really do. They, they're they a big company, and they move kind of slowly, and they're being very cautious. And, but I think they'll get there eventually. I think they will share, share with us total amount of DNA that's shared. I think they will share with us. Um, some segment data, they're not going to tell us where on the chromosome because they're worried about future implications for health and that type of thing. But I think eventually they will give us more information. For now, they've given us a table, and I have this in my um, Understanding Ancestry DNA Quick Guide that I've written. Um, But essentially, the extremely high category means that you're sharing more than 30 centimorgans with your match. And a centimorgan is just a unit of measure for DNA. 
Uh, you can kind of think of it like an inch or a mile. It's a little more complicated than that, but you can think of it that way. Um, and then the very high category is 20 to 30 centimorgans, and it kind of goes down from there. So they give us these ranges. You know, this is as helpful as they're capable of being right now. Um, hopefully, they'll get more helpful. Uh, but for now, this is kind of where they're at and the information they're willing to share. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break and come back because we want to talk about how we can organize the information that we're getting. And so quick break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Well, you have been listening to Diane Southern discuss how to organize and analyze your autosomal DNA results. Now, I have opened the phone lines for questioning, and if you would like to ask a question or make a comment, please call 646 2200 I hear an echo. I don't know if anybody else hears an echo. Do I sound okay still? Okay, let's see what's going on with the echo. Maybe we'll have we'll make some adjustments. Just a quick second, everyone. I'm going to make an adjustment. I hope the echo is gone now. If it, Do you hear it now, Diane? I can still hear it. Okay, let's see what's going on. Are you okay? Because I don't hear you echoing at all. Okay, everyone if it's else just me saying you echo, then we're okay. Everyone is uh, saying some in some ways is still there, in some ways it's not. So is that okay now? It's a little better. Okay, great. Well, Diane, please help us understand what's uh, what can we learn about the size of the chromosome and the segments. Okay, so I first want to say I feel like we got like really technical 
um, before. And anybody who's out there listening and you feel like this is just way over your head or you're too lost, you don't need to know these things, first of all. All you really need to know about DNA testing and genealogy is that the people that are on your match page, for the most part, especially your first page of matches, are your cousins. They share enough DNA with you that you share a common ancestor with each other. The best way, the most direct way to figure it out is just by comparing genealogy. You're looking for shared surnames and shared locations between you and your matches. And that's it. You use the same genealogy skills that you know and love to help you figure out how you're related to other people. You build out your own genealogy as solidly as you can, and then you compare it to those people that are on your match list. That's it. That's really what this all comes down to. Now, there are other tricks and other things you can do to try to massage the DNA, to try to get what you can out of it. But in the end, it really comes down to your genealogical skills and helping your matches with their genealogical skills, comparing trees and finding common ancestors. That's really it. So all these other things that we're talking about can be really confusing and they're extra. Okay, that's the bones of it. That's the meat of it. That's where you're going to find the most success really is in your skills as a genealogist. So I just want to say that first. Okay. Okay. All right. So let's turn, actually, if you don't mind, Bernice, to your genealogical question and your DNA situation. Is that okay if we talk about that for a little bit? That's fine. Okay. So Bernice has had um, her brother and her sister and herself tested, and um, they found that they have these overlapping sections of DNA with a few other people, and they're trying to figure out how they might share a common ancestor. So many of you maybe are in the same situation where you're corresponding with your matches, you're doing exactly what I just told you to do, you're looking at your tree, you're looking at their tree, and nada, nothing, right? There's no similarities. So what do you do then? Like, what, what's your course of action? Do you just throw up your hands and say, well, I guess that didn't work? <laughs> you can do that. Um, but you can also use some other tools to try to help you figure out how you're related. Now remember, with an overlapping section of DNA, especially when the relationship is further back, so in Bernice's case, um, these cousins that are showing up on her match page are fourth to fifth cousins. Now this is kind of on the edge of that relationship level that autosomal DNA is capable of reaching reliably. Okay, so we're on the edge, okay? Living on the edge, Bernice, that's good. It's adventurous of you. Okay. okay. So. Okay, so remember there's two reasons that you could share DNA with someone else. The first is that you actually share a common ancestor. The second is that you just have common population groups and each of you have received this piece of DNA from someone in your past, but not the same someone, okay? So those are the two possibilities. So then we have to just decide which one is more likely. So first, you do what you did. You turn to your genealogy and you look for common locations or common surnames. Okay, so if you all found out that you all come from South Carolina, okay, that's good, right? That means you've identified a common location. Now, is that common location because you have a common ancestor or because all of you had ancestors in that location, but none of them were common? Okay, so you're still kind of in the same, I'm not sure why we're sharing this segment situation. 
Okay, so then you just, you do the genealogy work, you don't find anything, then we turn to the DNA. So one thing that you have going for you is that it's not just you and your immediate siblings who've been tested, but you also found a couple of cousins. So if you have your pen and paper out and you want to keep track of Bernice's pedigree, then let me tell you who else she found in the 23andMe database. She found two cousins on her mom's side. Okay, These are descendants of her mom's brothers. So if you draw your little pedigree chart, put Bernice in there with her parents, then give her mom a couple of brothers and give them a couple of descendants who've been tested. Okay, so these people came up on her match list and they came up as first or second cousins, which all fits in very nicely with the relationships that they should have with each other. So right there, we see the DNA working. Yay, everybody do a little clap for the DNA. It worked. It identified Bernice's cousins in the database. Now, these were close relatives. These were first and second cousins. The databases are very good at finding your first and second cousins. Okay, they're even really good at finding your third cousins they're really not that great at finding your fourth cousins, okay? About 50% of your fourth cousins will not be identified genetically. You just don't share enough DNA. So that shows you, if you go down even one more generation, you're losing even more people, okay? So this is good. We see the DNA at work. We see that they share the right amount DNA to be in this relationship range and everything is verified, okay? She also has two cousins on her dad's mom's side okay so this is her maternal grandmother so again if you want to give her dad parents and then these are the these are the Kemp ancestors if you want to keep track of a name that might help you so on the Kemp side she's got two more cousins and again we see the DNA working it works it identified these people it gave them the right relationship and everything is right in the world okay so now we have this other group this group of people that are sharing DNA with Bernice and her siblings but we can't figure out how they're related. So if you have other relatives in the database that you've identified, you know your relationship, compare them against these people that you don't know. So 23andMe is the only one with this really amazing tool where you can ask them to show you how two other people are related to each other. So Bernice can say, hey, I wanna know how my Kemp cousin is related to my other Kemp cousin and she can see the DNA that they share, which is awesome. No other company lets you do this, except for GEDmatch, which is different, separate. We'll talk about that later if you want to. Okay, so what I did is I asked the database, okay, are any of the Kemp relatives related to this group of people that we wanna figure out how they're related? The answer was no. None of the Kemp relatives are related to this mystery group. Okay. so. Theoretically, then, that tells us that the mystery group is not related to Bernice's dad's mom, the Kemp line. Now, is it possible that they are, that they just didn't get the same DNA from the common ancestor? Yes, it's still possible. But let's say it's less likely. So now we've just eliminated the whole Kemp line as being the possible connection between Bernice and the mystery group. Okay, that's great. So then we turn again now to Bernice's mom's side. Remember, we've got two cousins who've been tested on her side, descendants of her uncle. Do they share any DNA with the mystery group? Again, the answer is no. So that kind of, again, you can't be absolutely positive, but that makes it less likely that this mystery group is related to anyone on her mom's side. 
because these cousins are sharing both grandparents with Bernice. So if this mystery group was related through either of Bernice's grandparents on her maternal side, there should have been some shared DNA. There wasn't. Now again, it's not absolute, but it's less likely then that this mystery group is related through her mom's side. So if you look at your pedigree chart, if you drew one out, who's left over? If we've crossed out her mom and we've crossed out her dad's mom, the person who's left is her dad's dad. So the most likely candidate, Bernice, for a shared ancestor between you and this mystery group is somewhere on your dad's dad's line. Does that make sense? Oh, yes. I, I, I totally agree. Okay. So that's one way you can go about this whole DNA testing thing is to have multiple people tested. To have someone on your maternal side tested, a maternal cousin, a paternal cousin tested, and then you can look through your matches in the same way and try to find people that are matching with your maternal cousin. Okay, well, that puts them on your maternal side, and that at least hacks off half of your pedigree chart, and you're only focused then on the other half. So by process of elimination, at least you can say what lines they're not related to, and sometimes you can even say what lines they are related to. However, suppose you have individuals that don't show first and second cousins and their matches begin with a fourth to fifth cousin range. How would you then determine what side the match is on? You, you really can't. Um, it's, it's really hard. Identifying a fourth cousin is really hard. If you think about the number of ancestors you have on that fourth cousin line and the number of ancestors your match has on that fourth cousin line, it's a lot of people. And you can use triangulation like we were talking about where you find overlapping sections of DNA with other people. Theoretically, it's possible that you received the same piece of DNA. Now, ancestry is saying that's not possible. Again, I'm not really sure what to believe, honestly. Um, statistically, I'm kind of leaning with ancestry. If you think about the statistical probability that two people have received the same piece of DNA, it's small. But you add a third or a fourth or a fifth person to that scenario, and it becomes statistically unlikely. That's math. So triangulation will work, I think, for close relatives, because you and your first cousins obviously have shared pieces of DNA, and all of you have them. So for first or even second cousins, triangulation is going to work just fine. But you move much beyond that, especially that fourth or even fifth cousin range, the chances that all of you are going to have a same piece of DNA are pretty small. So I don't think triangulation is a really awesome way to go if you're dealing with fourth or fifth cousins. I think it's kind of a long shot. So then what you're doing is you're trying to just gather multiple people who are related to each other. And you can do that using the tools at 23andMe. So you take each of your matches and you compare them with each other, essentially. What Ancestry says they're doing, and again, I know there's a lot of Ancestry haters out there, but what they're trying to do with their DNA circles, which I know they aren't always right, they have a lot of mistakes and a lot of problems, but I think the principle is sound. What they're doing is they're taking a group of people who are sharing segments with each other, not the same segment, but lots of different segments. 
So I'm sharing with you on chromosome five. You're sharing with someone else on chromosome seven. I'm sharing with that someone else on chromosome 11. Together, the three of us make a DNA circle, even though we're not all three sharing the same piece of DNA. That's what their DNA circles are. They're groups of people who are sharing DNA with each other, but not all the same segment. And you can do that too, using the tools at 23andMe. You can ask each of your matches, who are you sharing DNA with? Who am I sharing DNA with? And you begin to create circles, groups of people that are sharing pieces of DNA with each other. If you can find a group of five people that each of the five are sharing DNA with at least two other people in that five, if that makes sense, you've made a DNA circle, just like Ancestry does. And theoretically, then, the five of you should be able to identify a common ancestor. That's like if triangulation is using three people, that's what, pentagulation, <laughs> pentagram, five <laughs> people? Yeah. So let's try pentagulation instead of triangulation. I think that is a wiser course, um, statistically speaking. That's a more likely scenario to happen, that five people descended from a common ancestor, two of them might have the same segment, and then the other two are going to share a different segment. And so that's what we're looking for. That's how you create genetic relationships that can lead to a genealogical conclusion. I think. Okay, so so take us through that uh, because I you know I have some comments coming out. One person said, "Well, if you take all my fourth cousin matches, then I don't have anything," because a lot of people have fourth cousin matches, and I know even with some of my fourth cousin matches, I've made sense out of it. I've been able to find the common ancestor. So uh, take us through this whole scenario of, of the segments and the overlapping segments and how can you determine whether it's real and obviously you, you do need the genealogical information to back up what's, what you're seeing, but help us kind of get, get beyond the maybe fourth cousins you can't figure it out. Oh, Bernice, I don't know that you can always get beyond that um, at this point. I think um, if you have, which most of us do, a lot of fourth cousins, a lot. From what I've gleaned and from what I've surveyed from other genetic genealogists who are looking at a lot of data, like I do, a lot of different people's data, in general, we feel like ancestry underestimates your relationship. So if they're saying that you're fourth cousins, a lot mm -hmm. of times you're really third cousins, okay? So at Ancestry, they're being very conservative in how they're telling you who you're related to, okay? Mm -hmm. At 23andMe, okay. they're kind of more in the middle, more right on in that if they say you're a third cousin or a fourth cousin, they're more often correct. At Family Tree DNA, I feel like they are way, way overestimating your relationship where they're saying you're fourth cousin yeah. and you're really not. You're like fourth or sixth, like sixth cousins. Mm -hmm. So like I said, different databases have their different algorithms and they're doing things in a little bit different way. So when I look at my fourth cousins at Family Tree DNA, I'm impressed that you found a fourth cousin match. Has it been at a different Family Tree or a different company? 23andMe. Yeah. So that makes more mm -hmm. sense to me because I feel like at Family Tree DNA, when I look at my fourth cousins and I try to correspond with them, I have had no luck, zero luck. 
fairly, I don't have all of my fourth fourth cousin ancestors filled in. I don't know who they all are. So part of that's on me. I need to figure that out um, before I hope to make connections. And, you know, that's part of the reason we do this, right? I want someone to help me fill in those blanks. And um, But in the end, um, you can use the segment data, again, to try to find people that might share a common ancestor with you. Um, but it's going to take a long time and it's going to take a lot of work. And at Family Tree DNA, they have the in common with tool, which can be helpful for identifying other people that are sharing DNA with each other. Um, but they don't have anything like the 23andMe chromosome browser where you can actually put different people in and compare their DNA with each other. I've actually talked with Family Tree DNA about that and they're like, oh, that's a good idea. We should do that. I'm like, yes. You should do that. Um, but I don't know where that is on their list. And of course, at Ancestry, we don't have anything like that. You really are just left at the mercy of their DNA circles or their new ancestor discoveries or your match page uh, where you can look for shared locations and surnames, but you can't compare any kind of actual data. Um, so I, I feel like at this point, you are kind of crippled. I think for those of you who have mostly fourth cousins on your list, um, it's going to be a, a long, hard road. And I think um, the best thing you can do is to recruit other people to be tested. You've got to create your own circles. You've got to create, you've got to figure out what your maternal side DNA looks like by testing a member of your maternal family line. You've got to test a cousin. If you only have fourth matches, fourth cousin matches, your resources should be spent testing other people to create more data for yourself. You don't have enough information to figure it out right now. That's, that's what I think. Right. Not to mention, you have to do the paperwork. You have oh, to yeah. understand, do your genealogy, because that's where you really are going to make sense out of those yeah. relatives. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, and really, if you've done your genealogy, then start doing the genealogy for your matches if you want to know how you're related. Because, However, it, you know, what about the matches that don't know anything? Now, let me just throw out a question to you is it, because I am, just like many others, are finding people that have been adopted and they are looking for their birth parents. And they don't have a whole lot of information about their birth family. What can you recommend to those that show up as their relatives? Um, first of all, um, good job for you for even talking to those that are adopted. I feel like a lot of adopted people that I talk to are reaching out to their matches and they're getting nothing. So the best thing you can do is just talk to them and reassure them and say, well, welcome to the family. Um, no matter what your relationship is to them, it's a very um, difficult road, I know. Um, but really what you do is you say, okay, well, we're predicted to be third cousins, for example. Then you hand them your pedigree chart and say, well, here's all my third great grandparents. You can do all the descendancy work that you want until you find something that looks familiar. And that's really what they need to do. They need to take your pedigree chart. They need to find every single descendant of every third generation relative and find one that looks like they were the right age at the right place at the right time. That's mm -hmm. what they need to do. 
that's all you can do for them is give them what you know about whatever generation the genetics are saying that you're matching at and saying, okay, it looks like one of these 16 people was your grandparent or your great-great-great-grandparent. Now do the descendancy work and let me know what you find because I'll take it. Yes, it 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 is something that that you run into. I mean, I talk about the whole emotional side of DNA because you do touch into those emotions of of people that are upset when they can't find the common ancestor, upset because people are not communicating with them. But this is what we need to talk about when we talk about DNA. It it's there, you get a lot of cousin matches and you have no idea how you are related. And how can, I mean, as the DNA, as you try to help people organize their DNA, what do you tell them when they are just hitting a brick road? They just can't figure out what to do. Do they just throw up their hands and say, sorry, I don't know how we're related, but we can call ourselves cousin anyway. What do you say? <laughs> I think I think you start getting a little creative with the way that you're organizing your matches. So I think organization has a lot of power, especially when we're talking about large amounts of data. So I use tools um, like Google Earth, for example. So I have all of my third grade and my fourth grades, which I said aren't that many, um, on Google Earth. And I have them under their own little folders. So you can make little folders in Google Earth and you click on that folder and all the map points that you've created for that little folder show up. So I can see where each of my um, third grade grandparents was born. I'll have their own little pin with their name on it. So I then create a folder for my matches, the ones that I'm trying to figure out. I do the same thing for them. I put all of their third grades, if we're third cousins, I put them all there on the map. And I just one after the other, you start to overlay these people and it's meticulous and it takes a long time to input other people's genealogy places into your map. But over time, I've found you can see how people are congregating and you see that, oh my gosh, I've got a lot of matches that are all from uh, Wisconsin. I've never even considered having an ancestor in Wisconsin, but they all do. So maybe that's where I need to be looking. Um, so it can create patterns for you. Data creates patterns. Data has an amazing way of telling you things if you look at enough of it. And so it's just about you taking what's being given to you and putting it in a way that you can see it better. For me, I'm very visual. I want it on a map. I want to see where all of these people were when they were, right? So for me, I do it by year as well. So place and time are the things that your ancestor has to tell you, right? They were in a certain place at a certain time, at least for a few minutes when your ancestor was conceived, right? They had to be in the same place at the same time. That's how this works. So I need to know those things. And the more you know about these places and locations and dates, the more you know about your match list and the bigger pictures you can see, the patterns begin to form. And so if you're at a brick wall, then start your own little Google Earth project and start mapping out the locations of your matches ancestors until you start seeing patterns. Once you start seeing patterns, you can be a little more careful about how you're looking through your match list. So if Wisconsin became a place of interest to me, 
then I can now search through my match list for anyone who's listing Wisconsin. So all three testing companies have a way for you to search by location. So then you search by location and you begin to see, okay, I've got this other set of matches. These people that have Wisconsin ancestry now become your new favorite matches and you put them into your chart or into your Google Earth. So you, you have to use the data that's being given to you and you have to put it out there where you can see it. Right, and I'm, I'm looking at some of the comments coming out of the chat room, and this is from uh, Shannon. He said, the first year of his autosomal DNA journey was challenging, but near the end of that year, he formulated a strategy from trial and error, and that methodology applied again and again and has served him very well. And I think this is pretty much what you're saying. Uh, come up with a strategy, map it, and um, I'm, I'm truly surprised myself because I was looking for all of my ancestral links in the South, and I'm showing a whole bunch of folks in New England and mm -hmm. in Maryland. And so it's they're moving, but I also uh, recognize that my some of my ancestors were enslaved, and some of my European cousins. Uh, have no idea where the connection comes. And so that's where the questions come in about wills and deeds and manumission papers and diaries and give me more information. So we're back to understanding the need to do genealogy and the paper right. trail. There, so as far as methodology goes, there's really two main ways you can approach your match list. The first is to be looking for someone specific. So it's kind of like, were you ever going to walk into a research library without a goal? Are you ever gonna show up and just say, well, I'm gonna look through some books and see what I find? That's ludicrous, right? You'd never do that. It's the same with your DNA. You can't just walk in, log into your match list and say, feed me. It, it doesn't work that way. So you have to approach your match list with a question. Say, well, today I wanna to find out about my Lewis ancestors. And so you take all of your Lewis ancestors, you take the surname and you take all of their locations and you methodically search through your match list for anyone resembling your Lewis line. So maybe the Lewises um, married the Millers. Okay, well then you search for Lewis and Miller and well then they married into this line. So take just your group of surnames, just that small group, um, parents, grandparents, siblings, that kind of thing. And you search that match list asking that question and you pull out the individuals that become your best matches, the most important ones to answer your question. So that's the first way. Go in with the question. Just decide you're going to see how much you can find out about this one line in your DNA. The second way is just to choose your best genetic match. Choose the second cousin, third cousin that you're not sure how you're related to each other. And you turn to their pedigree chart and you start building it out or building it back. And you start looking again for common surnames, common locations, just within that one single match. So if it's a relationship as close as third cousin, I, I'm really confident that you actually share a common ancestor. If you get into that fourth cousin range, I have concerns that you don't actually share a common ancestor with some of those people, that you just share common population groups. And they're coming up on your match list because you have a lot of common pieces of DNA. And I'm not certain you're always going to be able to find out who your common ancestor is. That's the reality, I think, right now, the way things sit with a fourth cousin. 
I'm not confident those are always going to pan out for you. But I'm pretty confident in your third cousins. So if you have those, then you can focus on one of those. Your fourth cousins are going to be saved for that first kind of search, where you're pointedly looking for particular locations or surnames that you can then pick out a few of your matches that become your best matches, that have the best chance of panning out. Now, there's a question coming out of the chat, and they would like some thoughts on the value of admixture tools and analysis. This is a huge hook in genetic genealogy. A lot of people are being tested for these very tools because they're very interested in this kind of information. So I get asked these kinds of questions a lot. And there's no greater source of disappointment for people than these results, I think. So I think it's a combination of people going with really high expectations about what admixture results are going to tell them. And then they're ultimately really disappointed because they don't tell them what they wanted or they don't understand what they're telling them. So the admixture tool um, at each company is um, attempting to try to tell you something about your ancient or even recent genealogical history using modern day populations. So you can imagine how difficult it is to try to extrapolate information about the past from the present. That's what they're trying to do and that's why it's getting mixed up. That's why it's not always accurate. Um, for the most part, I think your admixture tools are fantastic if you're looking for something specific. Again, if you're going in with a question, your admixture tools are going to help you address that question. If your question is, do I have Jewish ancestry? Do I have African-American ancestry? Do I have Native American ancestry? Those types of very specific population groups that are easily identified, relatively speaking, with DNA, those are great questions to ask going into your admixture results. And you're probably going to be able to get um, a very clear answer of yes, but a no answer is not clear. So if you go in there asking, do I have Jewish ancestry, and you come up with 4% Jewish, then yes, you do. You have Jewish ancestry. But if you go in with that question and you have zero Jewish ancestry, it doesn't mean that you don't. It just means that you didn't inherit that little bit of Jewish heritage from your ancestor. Now, what it does mean is that it's very unlikely that your grandparent was Jewish because you would have received a piece of that and it would have shown up in your match list. So it can tell you that that Jewish heritage, if you do have it, isn't really recent. It's definitely more distant, but it can't say no. It can only say yes. Okay, so go in with the question that you're trying to have answered. Right. Well. Well, let me go back to the whole the whole fourth cousin thing, and let's for one second talk about Cinnamorgans, and what's the significance of the Cinnamorgan as far as how large it is versus how small it is, and uh, multiple segments matching for one person. Okay, good good technical question. So, like I said, you can think of a centimorgan like a unit of measure, but it's not that simple. But in general, the larger the segment, the more likely it was to have been inherited from a common ancestor, and the less likely it is to be a little 
population piece. Okay. Now again, this is data coming out of Ancestry um, based on their population and the data that they've gathered. And um, they just published this table about three weeks ago. And you can look it up on their website as well, or on their blog rather. But essentially, what they have determined, or what they say they've determined, is that 95% um, of segments that are between five and six centimorgans are population segments, not tickets to your ancestors' party. So they're not valid, not real, not ones you want to base relationships on. Would you repeat okay, so that they, again, please? So 95% of segments that are five to six centimorgans long are population-based. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay, now this same kind of data has been um, aggregated by other sources. So Tim Jansen, for example, is a genetic genealogist who's done a lot of his own studies. And this is similar to what he's found, that these smaller segments tend to be not real or not valuable for gen genealogists. Okay, so Ancestry's table goes up and up. So essentially we hit about the 50% mark where 50% of the segments are good and 50% are questionable at about 10 to 12 centimorgans. So anything over 10 is 50% likely essentially to be a good segment. So that goes and then they get up to that 15 to 20 centimorgan mark is about that 25% mark. So 25% of segments that are 15 to 20 centimorgans are not good. So even some of these larger segments, I need segments, you to repeat again, that one more time. That's Just okay. repeat it one more All time. Right. So 15 to 20 centimorgans long are about 25% likely to be not real, to be population-based segments instead of indicating a single shared common ancestor. So that's a quarter of the time, okay? So I'm, that still leaves 75% of the time that those are awesome segments that you can absolutely use to match up with your common ancestor. So this is, again, data from a large data set where they've looked at almost a million people, and they're seeing these segments, they call them pileups, where thousands of people are sharing at the same location. And they're identifying these as what they call these pileup regions, that you're sharing them not because you share a single common ancestor, but because these pileup regions represent a particular location. So I was trying to think about this in a way that was easier to understand. And what I've come up with are Christmas lights. Okay, so you picture your Christmas lights and picture your Christmas lights instead of being perfectly staggered across the string, picture them instead where they've got a group of them and then maybe some space and then another group of them. But can you picture your Christmas lights like that? Think of a certain strand of your Christmas lights as a centimorgan. Within that centimorgan are lights. And depending on which segment you chose, there might be more lights on one segment than another, right? Depending on the way that your lights have aggregated together, right? Because they're not evenly spaced like they are in your normal Christmas lights. This is how your DNA is. And the lights represent what are called SNPs. These capital S, capital N, capital P, and we call them SNPs. Now we talk about SNPs a lot when we talk about mitochondrial DNA and Y DNA. There's these 
single changes that occur in your DNA. That's what we're really looking at in your autosomal DNA. We're looking at SNPs. And SNPs have a time and a place. There's a time and a place where this SNP mutated, where it changed. Now, in Y-DNA, it's easy to think about these SNPs because they represent a migration path, essentially, for our ancestors. And in Y-DNA, when we're following one single line, it's much easier to see how these SNPs have all fallen into place and how if you have this particular SNP, that means your ancestor lived here about 60,000 years ago. It's very delineated and sort of easy to understand. But the same principle is true with your autosomal DNA. We talk about centimorgans. We're really talking about SNPs. We're talking about these changes that have occurred in our DNA. That's what this is all about. And we don't know that much about all of these SNPs. So maybe you're looking at a 20 centimorgan segment, and maybe it has a whole bunch of SNPs in it, but maybe those SNPs are really old. And so if you're sharing that piece of DNA with someone else, that just means that you have common ancient roots, that you all came from the same place in the world 10,000 years ago. That's not very useful for genealogy. But you move over a little bit across the chromosome and you come to a different set of SNPs on a different part of the chromosome and it's still 20 centimorgans. The SNPs are different and they're more recent, which makes them more valuable. And that's the thing. We just don't know everything there is to know about all of these Christmas lights. We don't know their age and their place. And we're still figuring that out. And so I think it's fair to say that some places on the chromosome are more valuable than other places on the chromosome. But we don't know where all those places are yet. And so that's part of the value of, of big data is helping us figure these kinds of things out. Because these places where lots and lots of people are sharing, those are likely the places with these old SNPs, these SNPs that track us back five or 10,000 years as humans, as related people. Now, maybe that's a little too far back. They, they were careful when they selected these SNPs. They did try to choose SNPs that weren't just, hey, you're human. Um, but you can guarantee, Bernice, that the way these SNPs are working for you are different than the way they're working for me. Because you probably have a lot different SNPs than I do. And the database is looking at you like you're me, not like you're you. All of these algorithms have been written based on the data that they have, which is European data. They're not looking for SNPs that are African. So for me, on chromosome two, I might have exactly the same DNA as every one of our listeners that's European. But yours is different. And so for you, for example, Ancestry might want to throw your piece of data out. Uh-huh. But they'll look at that spot again and they'll say, hey, Bernice doesn't have a huge pileup like Diane does. We're going to leave that piece of data in for her because it matters. But for me, it doesn't matter because everybody else has it. So there's so much <laughs> that needs to be learned. There's so much data that needs to be analyzed. We are so at the very beginning of this. And there's, it's interesting and it's fascinating, but it's so confusing and it's so hard to know what to do. We want to know now and I want to get my hands dirty and I want to understand it, but there's a lot of factors. 
And maybe that was right. a long answer. And, and it looks like this, the science is still evolving, but you know, yeah. because people are testing, they are paying their, mon their money, they want to understand, is this a valid test? Is this going to help me connect the dots? And I have a question that was asked, what size segment is a good match? I mean, is that a valid question for them to want to know what size segment? Because if you have somebody that's 0.76 CMs on one segment, is that valid? Or do they throw it away because it says fourth cousin? So my fellow listener, I want that number too. I do. And for a while, I believed the number 10 centimorgans. I believed that anything over 10 centimorgans was worth hanging on to. And I think in general, that's an okay place to be in. But recognize that not every section over 10 centimorgan is going to be valuable. But don't go dipping below 10. I think that's a definite stopping point for me. I will not go below 10 centimorgans. There is way okay. too much going on down there that we don't know about. Yeah, stay above 10, but even be cautious between 10 and 20. I think you get to 30, you're golden. But yes. even that range between 10 and 30, be cautious. I think most of those are probably real segments, most. But there are going to be some that aren't, especially just know your own heritage. If you have colonial ancestry, be more careful than if you don't, because you're going to have a lot more larger segments that are shared just because you have common ancestry anciently, not because you have one single common ancestor. Okay, now someone uh, just as a, a mention stated that if anyone watched First Peoples last night, and I certainly watched it on PBS, evolving DNA science has already unproved many things we thought we knew. And uh, that's just something for us to, to think about. This whole DNA, it, it is definitely evolving. So tell us, uh, Diane, what can and how can people learn from you? And what do you have to offer folks as your DNA guide? Well, I have a couple of options. I do sell some um, DNA quick sheets. So I have one for every test type, as well as one to teach you how to use ancestry DNA and how to use family tree DNA. Um, I'm still working on my 23andMe one. Hopefully that'll be done in another couple months or so. Um, but those are exactly what they sound like. They're just exactly what you need to know to get started and to get started using your test results. So it's um, very easy to understand, I feel like. Um, the, like I said, these tables of information that are easy reference that you can go back to all the time. I still look at them. In fact, when I was talking to you, I was looking at them. Um, I have some of these kinds of numbers written in them for my own reference as well. Um, so that's one. If you're a kind of a do-it-yourselfer and you feel like, you know, you can read something and then go out to your computer and put it into practice, then these are probably a really great option for you. I have them on my website and you can get digital versions as well as um, real hard copy versions and they're laminated um, so you can kind of take them with you and spill your coffee on them and stuff. Um, and then I also have a, a consultation where I spend 45 minutes with you using GoToMeeting. 
So we log into your DNA testing company's website together, and I teach you how to find your best matches. If you want to know how to use a chromosome browser, you want to know how to look at your segment data, or you just want to know how to filter your match list, uh, that's what we'll do. And I'll take you through each step and you can ask a million and one questions. And um, at the end, I actually record our whole session. You get that as a video file. And then I'll also write you up a little one-page summary and a little to-do list. So I feel like a lot of people that I talk to and maybe many of you on the call tonight are in this situation where you feel like you kind of get it. You're just not sure. I feel like a lot of people come to me and say, oh, I don't understand this at all. Diane, you need to help me. And we get going, and you do understand. You just don't know that you do, and you don't feel confident in what you know. And so it's really helpful to sit down with me, and I can just reassure you, you're on the right track. You're doing everything right. Keep going in this direction. Don't worry about that. Nope, drop that right here. This is You were doing this part right. And I feel like most people are already on the right track. They just don't know that they are. Right. And I, I just, there's a comment, uh, Family Tree Girl just saying, no confidence at all. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> you know, it's just, and and this is just a, a process, as you said. I mean, many people perhaps do know. I believe we have a lot of seasoned people in this chat room that really do understand the DNA. And but we started off just kind of with the basics, just to bring everybody up to speed. But it 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 is a a a process of understanding. Certainly, understanding your own genealogy is even more important. You've got to pull it all together. And for some of us, we we're just kind of hanging out there. We cannot connect the dots. And there are a whole lot of factors that's preventing that from happening. But clearly, uh, it is something that is not going to happen overnight. But it will happen eventually, I hope. But do you have any I words so. of wisdom before we close out the show tonight? I think my words of wisdom are just enjoy the ride. This DNA testing thing is just one more small piece of your genealogy toolbox. And I feel like it's worth getting into. It's fun. It's interesting. It's just using a different part of your brain than you're used to using. And I think any new tip or tidbit that you might get is going to be worth it. And um, it's fun. Just have fun with it. Don't be too serious about it. Don't put too much weight in it at this point. I think there's a lot of learning we all have to do. Um, I love that, that chat caller. I mean, science, if there's anybody who boasts strong and hard that they're right and they know all the answers and then five years later they have to totally turn around, it's scientists. That's how science works. People go out and say, this is it. I'm right. The world is flat. And then just be proved wrong later. Right. And that's just kind of how it is. That's right. And and for those of you that are a part of all the various uh, DNA Facebook pages, continue to share. I think one of the, the beauties of, of learning about DNA is that we have opportunity to talk to each other. And so join those various Facebook pages, get engaged, ask questions, and you may start seeing those answers come to you. And so for that, I want to just say everyone, just good evening. And, and thank you so much, Diane, for joining us tonight. And remember everybody, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, 
family records, even your DNA, and of course, research at the National Archives and beyond. Now, you can continue this discussion on the Research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And my website is www.geniebroots.com. Well, I look forward to everyone joining me next Thursday. Thank you so much. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Diane. Good night, Bernice. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs>